and particularly God's calling on his life to take a message of warning to people that he despised, that he ran the other direction. God could have just let this rogue prophet run away to Tarshish and settle there. He could have let him go, but he, he didn't. God certainly could have allowed Jonah to drown in the sea when he got pitched in. In fact, we, we almost have this picture here in Jonah 1 of, of Jonah wanting to die. And you see that again in our text this morning. This guy had kind of a, kind of a death wish. He preferred at least death over duty. He preferred death to doing what God had commanded him to do. He would rather drown in the sea than go to Nineveh and proclaim the gospel to his enemies, even though that was encapsulated as a word of warning because they might repent and God might relent and be gracious to them. That was how hard this man was. But no, God wasn't going to allow Jonah to just drown. It's not that easy. God appointed a great fish to swallow him and to transport him back in the right direction. God could have allowed Jonah in chapter 4 here, after his very successful mission, in which he proclaimed judgment to Nineveh, and in which they repented in mass, unlike what we read any other people group ever having repented before, God could have allowed Jonah just to stew in anger for 40 days on the scorching Mosul plain, hoping against hope that God would change his mind and, and actually torch the city until he died of dehydration or heat stroke. God could have left him alone. But no. God loved Jonah. God had compassion on Jonah, but it was a tough love. Jonah was a knucklehead, and God loved him enough to teach him a lesson using a vine, a worm, and a windstorm. Now here's the warning, by the way. Don't run from God. He, he disciplines those whom he loves, but it hurts. It hurts. And the, the more of a knucklehead you are, the harder you run, the, the bigger the knuckleheaded thing you do is, often the more discipline it takes. The Lord knows that measurement, what it's going to take to bring you back. And it hurts. It's not worth it better to just follow with all your heart. So let's look again at verse 5 through 8. And I'm going to just read each verse. And I've got some comments I want to make on each verse. We're going to look at basically two different sections to this sermon. Um, I don't have the outline I normally have for you. So just you got a blank slate there to write what you like to write. Whatever the Holy Spirit impresses on your heart. You might find the flow of the sermon to be a little different this morning. But we're going to first look at what God does to Jonah to get his attention. And how God actually provides him a good object lesson in this vine. And then we're going to look at the last couple of verses of dialogue between God and Jonah before the cliffhanger ending to our book. Then our, the next two weeks come back and we're going to look at some lessons from Jonah. Next week we're going to have a wonderful time in, in which the kids who are going to be preparing all week for kids' worship are going to come and, and help lead us in the worship of God with the theme of Jonah. And then I'm going to talk next week about how Jonah points us to Christ, how the anti-hero points us to the hero. And we're going to look at a number of ways in which we see Jonah foreshadowing and pointing to Jesus. So come back next week. So look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city 
and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, can you imagine the hard heart here of this guy? He's actually sitting there outside the city, hoping against hope. Still, even after God's reproof, hoping to see Nineveh burn. Can you imagine that? He had made eye contact with women and children in that city as he had, as he had traveled through it, proclaiming this message of wrath. He had even seen their repentance. And yet, we still have this sense that Jonah is still hoping to see Nineveh go down in flames as Sodom and Gomorrah had. Now, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually has a variant reading here. It says, in three days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. That being Jonah's, Jonah's message. Most scholars think, most of the manuscript evidence we have says that it was actually 40. But it is possible the Septuagint is right and that it was three days. So it's possible. We don't, we don't know, and that's fine. It doesn't change anything theologically. doesn't change what happened here at all. But it's possible that Jonah decided, hey, I got three days. And, of course, you can see how three days would foreshadow Christ, right? One more foreshadowing of Christ. But, so, so, but you, you can see possibly Jonah decided, all right, I'm going to sit here in this scorching sun for three days and wait and hope that somehow this repentance of theirs is short-lived and God still does relent from his relenting and rain, fire, and brimstone down in the city. Or, as the ESV puts it, 40 days. Jonah was likely willing to sit there and camp out in, on a very, very hot plain for 40 days. Instead of just going home, or instead of spending time in the city teaching them more about the ways of Yahweh, but hoping to see destruction on this city. And so we have the idea here, that, that he built some kind of crude shelter. That word that's translated booth could also be translated shelter. Some kind of crude shelter. Maybe it was out of some reeds. There's not a whole lot of wood on the Nineveh plain. But something that would maybe a couple little fronds on top, palm fronds on top to try to keep the sun off of, off of his head for survival. To get out of that hot sun. And so in verse 6 we read, Now the Lord God mercifully, it doesn't say mercifully, but it was merciful, appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now, the, the word here for plant in Hebrew, gigayon, has been translated and understood in different ways. This is the only time in the, in the Bible that this particular word is used. And most scholars think that this was a castor oil plant, which produces, it grows very quickly, and it's kind of a viney type plant that produces big um, fronds that could give you some shade over your head, right? Um, but just picture some kind of a vine. Maybe you've been running through the woods, and here in the, in the Florida heat in the summertime, we get parasitic type vines that grow up around trees and very quickly can provide a lot of shade and, and, and beauty, right? Well, this was a plant on steroids because in one night, God made this, miraculously made this plant just grow up. And the picture here is of a, of a vine kind of going around this crude, this crude shelter that, that Jonah has built and actually providing better shade and, and just calming green to cover his head from the sun. And we read here, Jonah 
was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, the word construction here is the very same for the first verse of chapter 4, where Jonah was displeased exceedingly, even angry because of God's mercy towards the Assyrians, towards the city of Nineveh, right? So as, as, as angry as Jonah had been emotionally about God's relenting against Nineveh, Jonah was pleased, exceedingly joyful to see this plant grow up over his head. Now that might seem a little strange to us, um, getting that excited about a plant. But actually, to be honest with you, it doesn't really surprise me at all. Uh, you see, where we, we lived in uh, a city in western Afghanistan that was at a very similar latitude to Mosul, ancient Nineveh, with a very, very similar geography and a very similar climate. And in the summertime, it gets up to about 115 degrees. Very dry. You could actually hang your clothes inside the house, all right, after, after washing them. And in 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes, they'd be dry, that dry, all right. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and just down a liter of water, okay, uh, and, and fall right back to sleep. Because you're just dry, you're, you're sweating, but your sweat's just drying, all right? And in that arid climate, there is nothing like a green, fresh plant, all right? Uh, I used to, we, we used to actually have grapevines that grew in our, in, our, in our yard very well, as long as they were watered. We had an old well and kept, and, and kept them watered. And, and so that was so refreshing to sit underneath the grapevine in the morning or even in the afternoon. It's, it's hot, but if you can get out of that sun... You can survive dry heat. I, I would take 115 degree dry heat any day over 90 degrees in, in Florida, okay, and, and 90% humidity. So this was something that was, you know, here Jonah, everything been going wrong for Jonah, right? I mean, everything has gone wrong, particularly the way, the way Jonah looks at it. I mean, he got swallowed by a fish for crying out loud, right? Um, three days in the belly of this fish, vomited out onto the sea. Then he has to go to this city that he despises. He proclaims a message of of judgment, hoping that that's what would happen to them, and they repent. And, and this is one missionary that did not want to be successful. And then God relents. So just everything has been sour grapes, and so finally, finally something is going right for him. Now this vine was given to Jonah by God, as we'll soon see, as an object lesson. All right? Bear in mind, this, this lesson did not happen in a Sunday school air-conditioned classroom, okay? This is out there in the grit of real life. And we've got to be careful that we don't become too academic, maybe, or Sunday morning uh, Christian in our theology and then compartmentalize it. But the lessons God has to teach us today are in real life, when the wheels are coming off, when, when real tragedy is happening. Right? When there are real unexpected joys, that's when we learn God's stuff. Not just in an hour and a half service. All right? we, we learn his word here, but God is interested in our lives and often teaches us through tragedy and through the great joys of life. So this wasn't in a, in a, in the, in the, the st a sterile environment. Okay? This wasn't just in a synagogue that Jonah is learning this lesson. This is out there in life when stuff happens so vine the vine was a lesson that we're going to see here in a, in a moment well in verse 7 we read but when dawn came up the next day 
God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Now, what, I want you to notice here one word, and maybe if you've been tracking, maybe this word, this verb has already jumped out. But we see some repetition here. We see it in verse 6. We see it in verse 7. We see it in verse 8. And it's the word appointed. The verb, the Hebrew verb mana. You see, God is sovereign. The, the same word is used for the great fish in chapter 1, verse 17, that God appointed. Or you could even say, another translation of the word is prepared. God prepared this great fish to swallow Jonah, to preserve his life, to teach him and the Ninevites a lesson about himself. Well, God also prepared or appointed that vine that, that gave him a day of solace and shade. And then God appointed this little worm. So he's sovereign over the, the great fish. He's sovereign over the little bug, the little worm. Or maybe the worm had some friends. Maybe it was a group of worms. The, the text isn't exactly clear. But what's clear is that it was appointed to destroy the vine. And then the same word we see in the next verse, God has appointed a windstorm. Now, this windstorm we read about in verse 8, I just want to say it is a, it's not like a soothing wind that you might imagine, right? You might be picturing a hot, humid, sticky floor today, and then the wind whips up, and it, it kind of brings some, a cooling element, all right? But there's something called the Sirocco in northern Africa, and it's in the summertime, and it's a hot, scorching wind that dehydrates everything that it touches, and it actually blows in dust as well. In fact, Sirocco's often actually cross uh, the Mediterranean and make it into southern Europe, okay? And I've, I've been in Athens when the Sirocco has come, and people dread it. And actually, you have, you have sand hanging in the air coming from North Africa, just kind of covering and, and polluting the city. That's the idea here of the storm. So look at verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Now, I can, I can understand a little bit here the dread of this Soroko or this, this dust wind. And back in Herat, the locals called them Hakbad, which means a dust wind. And there were days in which in the summertime we had what was called 120 days of wind. And it was not a refreshing wind. It was a wind that actually came from the, the west, from Iran, and just brought dust storms. There were days you'd look up in the morning and you'd see a yellow sky. It was just like an, it was, it was almost like something from Mordor, like Lord of the Rings kind of stuff, you know, just an evil sky. And, and I, it's the only place I've been where it can actually rain mud, okay? Rarely you get a, a rain, a late spring rain, when you had that, that chakbad, that dust, and it would actually just rain mud on you, okay? Um, other times it would just, it would just cake everything in, in dust and just dehydrate you, all right? That's the picture we have of this wind, well, notice here that it was an east wind. And notice that Jonah was sitting to the east of the city, right? So God appointed or directed this soroko, this dust wind, this dust storm to come from the east. So this wind was not intended, this storm was not intended for Nineveh. It was intended for the, the guy who was sitting just east of Nineveh, Jonah. Does that make sense? Well, this 
windstorm probably blew over Jonah's crude shelter. And then you have this picture of the sun beating down on Jonah's head. And once again, he wanted to die. One scholar that I read noted that Jonah's body temperature mirrored the temperature of his heart. He was burning in hatred of the Ninevites, wanting this city of adults and children to burn alive. That's what he wanted for these people. Okay? Well, now he's also smoking hot angry at God. And, he, and God has him phys- physically, potentially burning to death if he doesn't repent here. And then in verse 9 we see God speaking directly with Jonah. Now I want you to note Jonah's direct candor here <laughs> with God. Verse 9. One, one thing, I, I mean, i got to say. Um, Jonah is not presented in, with, with any flattery here in the Bible, okay? Um, but I, I kinda, you got to kind of respect the guys like he's honest with God. There's no whitewashing, right? I mean, it takes some, some guts, some backbone, probably misplaced, but to talk to the supreme deity with all power in heaven and earth the way Jonah does. But he is honest with God, with how he's feeling. And notice again God's patience and, and, and compassion here, even for Jonah. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, verse 10, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. And also much cattle. Well, what was the lesson that God wanted Jonah to learn? That required this plant and then this this vine and then this, this worm and then this dust storm. What was the lesson? Compassion. God wanted to learn compassion. You may notice the word in our translation I just read in the ESV is translated pity in verse 10 and verse 11. Well, that that same word is translated in several translations. I think it might even be a better translation. Compassion. NIV, I think, says to be concerned for. You've been concerned for. You've had compassion for this plant. Shouldn't I be much more compassionate on people and animals, sentient creatures? Tom, uh, uh, Tim Keller tells us that the, the word that's used here for pity or compassion means, quote, to grieve over someone or something, to have your heart broken, to weep for it. God says, in essence, you weep over plants, but my compassion is for people. Tim Keller continues, for God to apply this word to himself is radical. This is the language of attachment. God weeps over the evil and lostness of Nineveh. When you put your love on someone, you can be happy only if they are happy, and their distress becomes your distress. 
The love of attachment makes you vulnerable to suffering. And yet that is what God says about himself here and in other places, like Isaiah 63, 9. In Genesis 6, 6, it says that when God looked down on the evil of the earth, his heart was filled with pain. While this language cannot mean that the eternal, unchangeable God loses any of his omniscience or sovereignty, it is a strong declaration at which we must marvel, end quote. Those of us who are moms and dads, we know the absolute delight and love that children bring. Some of you have children who have broken your heart. Some of you have been through this, and after maybe years of knee time praying to the Lord, your children have come back. Some of you are going through that battle right now. Well, the lesson here is don't be that child that breaks God's heart because he portrays himself to us in his word as a parent. Now I want to make it clear that God is entirely sufficient and self-satisfied with himself relationally, right? The triune God was never lonely. We shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that because God made us to have a relationship with him, that means that he was lonely for eternity past, okay? The Trinity it, the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is our model of relationship. So it's not that God is or was lonely. No, it's that He is, and He was, and He ever will be loving. But in a sense, the Almighty God chose vulnerability for Himself when He chose to love us. And nowhere do we see this vulnerability more fully expressed than in the life of God incarnate, our hero, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The compassion that we see here of God in Jonah reaches its full expression of compassion, the compassion of Jesus, when he entered into Jerusalem, a city that he knew was full of people who in less than a week would torture and murder him and taunt him and reject him on the cross. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9, 41, that when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Talk about vulnerability and, and God showing emotion. Earlier in Luke 13, 34, Jesus actually cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stoned those who are sent to us, how often, to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. As he hung on the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Tim Keller, in, 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 in talking about that very passage of Jesus, says, Jesus is saying, Father, they are torturing and killing me. They are denying and betraying me. But none of them, not even the Pharisees, really completely understand what they are doing. Talk about a heart of compassion. Even though we betray him every time we willfully sin. Even though our sins actually nailed him to the tree, he looks on us with compassion. In fact, if you were the only sinner on the planet, he would have given his life for you. Jesus would have gone to the cross 
Well, do you see the goodness of God here that Jonah could not see because of his hatred and anger? God doesn't sneeze at sin. It would be unjust for him just to look the other way, as our Muslim friends think he does, and just pardon and let people into the kingdom. His justice demands that penalty, that payment be made for sin. We should never ourselves sneeze at sin. God can't just look the other way at genocide. It would not be right. He would not be a just God. God can't look at the other way when there's oppression or the denigrating of his creation through racism. It wouldn't be right for him to look the other way. Really, the only people who really wish that God was not just are maybe folks like us who live very comfortable lives. Okay, but much of the world doesn't have the, the blessings that we have of comfort. And they live with oppression. They live with open racism. There are plenty of people who've had to survive genocide. These people at the heart, their core, they want justice. God is just. He can't allow for the denigration of his name as people through their words and through their lives constantly take his name in vain. Justice must be done. But he lovingly paid the price that that justice requires on the cross, that our sins demanded on the cross. So God's argument here to Jonah in verse 10 through 11, coming back to our, our text, is that basically if you, Jonah, are so concerned for a plant, shouldn't you also be for the animals? I mean, what about all these animals that live in Nineveh that you want me to torch? Um, and we see here that God does care for the animals, but it's a, it's a lesser to greater argument. It's like, Jonah, if you are concerned for the plant, but you won't let me be merciful uh, to people, won't you at least be, let me be merciful in your mind to the animals? And what about the 120,000 people who, quote, do not know their right hand from their left? These people who are morally and spiritually ignorant. Now, there are differing opinions what, what Jonah is actually, or God's actually re referring to here about the 120,000 people. Some folks think that he's talking about the children, right? Those who haven't yet reached an age to where they can really understand right and wrong, right? I mean, we're talking about a wickedly violent society, but, you know, there's not a lot of wickedly violent six-month-olds, right? Maybe, maybe you know one or two. There's a few wickedly violent two-year-olds, um, <laughs> But God's, so, so it's very possible that God's actually making an argument from, from the plant to the animals to, the, to, to, to the, the young ones talking about his compassion, why his compassion is right. The, the problem, of course, with that is that archaeologists who've studied the ancient city of Nineveh say that, that, that at its peak, probably only about 175,000, which was a huge, huge metropolis for its day, uh, uh, people, so that would have been a lot of kids, right? 120,000 kids out of, you know, that would be, you know, some very, very productive adults um, to produce that many kids. So, 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 but it's also possible that, that what he's talking about here is the greater Nineveh, uh, the, the, the area of the plain, that the catchment, all the villages and towns that supported that city. So that's one possible interpretation. But I think more likely, this is a reference to the entire population of Nineveh in Jonah's day. And so this is a very generous way that God is speaking about a violent culture, saying these people don't really know what they're doing. And what I see from this is that we, too, should be compassionate on people 
who are lost, people who might even get themselves into a lot of trouble because of some very wayward behavior that doesn't justify an attitude on our part of saying they get their just desserts. We have the privilege as a staff of, of seeing um, benevolence cases each week. And, and, and sometimes folks come in and they've just had a hard, a hard, a hard knocks in life. I mean, sometimes it's no, no fault of their own. It's you know, medical disasters, um, uh, accidents, things that have led to getting into a really bad place. But sometimes folks come in and you listen to the story. And sometimes I'm thinking, what a, what a train wreck of bad decisions. I mean, not just one bad decision, but how can you make that, many, that, that much of a string of the worst possible decision to get into this jam that you're in, all right? But I don't have the right to sit in judgment of them, you see? God is a God of compassion, and he calls his people to be folks of compassion. God has compassion not only for those inside church buildings, but he has compassion for folks who snub him in, in ignorance, even unreached people groups, folks across the sea who behave badly. In our sentiment, our, the, so the question for us this morning, brothers and sisters, is, is our sentiment towards sinners more like Jonah's or is it more like God's? You know, in our own culture, I'm, I'm amazed at how often we see people showing more care about animals than humans. On our, on our honeymoon, Beth and I went down to St. Lucia almost 20 years ago, 19, 19 plus years ago. We stayed on a beautiful little island, and, and um, we're, from our, we're in this little jungle hotel looking out over the sea, and, and there, was this, there were these two conical mountains that rise right out of the sea, just beautiful. So, of course, we had to go climb one of them, right? You know, Beth dragged me along, kicking and screaming. And, and so we, we go hiking up this thing, and we had this, the trail was kind of hard. I'm kidding, it was my idea, but we, we had a good time together. And, and we're following this, this uh, the St. Lucian guide, this, this young lady. And we had another American couple with us, and it was a pretty steep hike. And this, somewhere along the way, this, this three-legged mangy dog decided it would be a great idea to, to kind of tag along. You remember the dog? And of course you do, because I say this to my wife all the time. Um, so, so this dog, three legs, open sores. I mean, it was, this is a nasty beast, all right? Um, it had been rolling in its own defecation. And so when you're on this little trail, where that's only about a foot across, and you're, you're staring down a couple hundred foot cliff, and the dog is like rubbing right up against your leg, I almost just kind of did that thing, you know? <laughs> the reason I didn't wasn't because of our guide, all right? I mean, the thing needed to be put out of its misery. This other couple were just taken with the dog. The entire trek up this, this mountain they're talking about trying to, they, they were on their honeymoon too, I think, and they were going to like go through all the paperwork to try to adopt the dog and take it back to America, all right? And at one point, the guide looked back at me and said, I cannot believe how much she loves the dog. <laughs> and I say that to my wife all the time. She's not a big dog fan, and we've got, a, uh, we've got quite, a, quite a high-maintenance dog. So now and then I jokingly say that to Beth. Americans are more concerned about stray animals than they are unborn babies, right? There's more concern by environmentalists for insects that they're worried about going extinct in the Amazon jungle than the indigenous people who live there. The end of the day, and this is sad, we, 
we pity, we have compassion for what, does, what, what brings us, what we think brings us our best interests, right? So much, quote unquote, love is selfish. That's not agape love. That's not the way of Christ. What do we see here about us in the church? Do we have God's heart for the lost? Or do we have Jonah's self-serving heart? I read a quote this last week from Jonathan Swift. If you don't know who Jonathan, Jonathan Swift was, he was an Anglo-Irish satirist. I think he was back 17th century. He was a clergyman and a poet and the author of Gulliver's Travels. Okay? And writing about the attitude of elitist, frozen, chosen Christians... Swift writes this. We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There is no place in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. Is that our attitude? We better watch. We better search our hearts and make sure it's not. That we have God's heart for the lost. Even those who don't know their right hand from their left. So like God, let's be compassionate people. And that starts... At home, in our families, parents, the way we interact with our children. Are we compassionate? Yes, we need to discipline them as a father does, the son in whom he delights. But are we compassionate towards our children? But you know what? One day the roles are going to be reversed. And some of you are living in that world too. Where children, you're taking care of your parents. Who through the aging process may need so an extra dose of compassion. Or you mean you need to check your own heart. Siblings. Are we compassionate for one another? My daughter's smiling at me. I don't know if she remembers her comment last week. We're driving along. And uh, uh, Grace has always been my, my, my uh, future retirement uh, plan here. Okay, she, um, she, Ever since she was little, she was going to have a farm. And we're going to move out to that farm and live with her on that farm. She's going to take care of us when we're old. Okay. So we're driving up to Tennessee two weeks ago, and um, my, my, we passed an old folks' home. And, um, and I say, Grace, you ever going to put me in an old folks' home? She says, as long as you're not too high maintenance, then I might. <laughs> I hear that, that um, you know, after the teenage years, things warm up, so I'm optimistic still. But siblings, how you react and relate. Is there compassion? Older siblings, you may need compassion for your little brother or sister. Spouses, compassion with putting up with each other's weaknesses. My, my dad, who just celebrated a couple days ago, we celebrated his 50th wedding anniversary. He, he's given me a, a, a good bit of wisdom over the years. Um, but one, one, one little nugget that he shared with me a long time ago is that the, the marriages that he's seen that work well, or when spouses just take it easy on each other, you know? I mean, when you, when you have a heart of compassion for each other, when, when you lower your expectations, when you learn how to, you need to have your, if, if you're thinking about getting married, you really need your eyes wide open, all right? Uh, oftentimes, maybe our eyes aren't wide open enough before we get married. But once you say, I do, it is time to close your eyes half shut, all right? You need to look at your spouse through rose-colored glasses with your eyes half shut. That's my little tidbit for you. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll remember that. But compassion for one another. Uh, we were hanging out with a family at my, the back of my dad's house uh, on the water on, on uh, Thursday, 
4th of July, and my brother decided it would be a great idea to buy this giant beach ball, all right? It was like a, it was advertised as 12 foot from pole to pole, so it was quite a beach, quite a big beach ball, and it took him a couple hours to figure out how to blow the thing up. But finally, when he had it up, uh, the, the idea was to have it floating in the water and try to jump on top of it from the dock. But the only way to do that was to stand up on top of a piling, which isn't the brightest thing in the world, and leap with all your might, and you, you want to get at least on top because you don't want to roll backwards and smack your head against the dock, right? So, you know, of course my younger brothers had been doing it, and uh, when I got back to the place and, and saw, uh, saw the whole thing, I had to give it a go as well, and I saw my wife sitting up in the yard, she was just shaking her head at me. <laughs> and I, I think I heard, understood her to say, I don't want to hear any complaining tomorrow. Right? So, of course, I gave it a couple goes, and, you know, I don't think I managed more than about a second on top of it before it flung me off and was doing some not-so-gracious backflops. The next day, Friday, I'm walking around moaning a little bit. Friday afternoon, the little back was talking to me. She was compassionate. She had every right to kind of roll her eyes, but she was actually concerned for me, right? So, wives, be compassionate for your knucklehead husbands. What about church? What about our life in the church together? Are we compassionate with one another? I, I, I read a quote this week from a, a friend who had put it up on Facebook, and he wrote, I'd rather attend church with messed up people who love God than with religious people who dislike messed up people. What kind of person are you? Well, are we compassionate for the lost. I, I pray that you are compassionate for the lost, whether they be your neighbor, who if they go through life without truly understanding and believing the gospel, they're headed for hell, for eternity, a fate worse than what awaited Nineveh. I hope you're compassionate for unreached people groups on the other side of the world. I had the privilege of visiting some of our missionaries just a couple weeks ago along with Bart and Wendy, and, and we hope you'll come back tonight for Rocky Family Night. We're going to have an awesome opportunity to hear from the Henses, Ray and Catherine, about their ministry in East Asia. And we're going to also share, Bart, Wendy, and I are going to give a brief. We don't, we're not gonna, the, the main show is the, the Henses, all right? So come back here at 6. After they're done with whatever remaining time we have, Bart, Wendy, and I are going to show a few pictures from our trip to Southeast Asia to see the Wilds, Hamiltons, and the Tidwells. Tidwells are serving at a bush hospital in South Asia, right, in a very, very poor country. While I was there, uh, there was a traffic accident right in front, of, and this happens all the time there, okay, on the, on the roads. Traffic accident happened right in front of the, right in front of the hospital, and, uh, and like nine people came in, two of them died. You know, surgeon there managed to save seven of their lives. He, he pointed out to, I mean, kids, you can cover your ears, um, uh, he pointed it to me in his fireplace, right? He, he, the, the, what holds the wood in his fireplace is, is a fireplace holder made out of angle iron, okay? And he's like, hey, you see that angle iron? We had, one, we, we had an accident right in front of the hospital here, and three people were impaled on one piece of angle iron, all right? And the doc on call was an OBGYN, right? He didn't know. He's not a general surgeon. Well, outside, they pulled the first guy off, he died. They pulled the second guy off, he died. The third guy was still alive with angle iron going right through him. So they took him in, and this OBGYN extracted the angle iron and managed to sew up his internal organs, and the guy survived. So he's like, well, I got this piece of angle iron. Got to do something with it. So he made a fireplace holder thing out of it. 
That's what he burned his wood in. So this is the, the world they're in, right? Well, what's so awesome about hosp- a hospital and medical ministry in a place with so much lostness, it's a, it's a beacon of compassion, right? It's showing the compassion of Jesus Christ in, in works, in real life actions. And so the, the doctor who told me that story, it's a guy named Nathan Piovison. We actually went to college together. And, and now Tidwells are serving with him. And so he sent an email out a couple months ago about a young lady named Matai Singh. I'm going to read to you a little bit about uh, what happened. Matai Singh was very near death when she arrived on our doors at our hospital last August. Her illness had been progressing for nearly two weeks. Now she had pus built up in her neck and chest. She was septic and not long for this world. It was with a heavy heart that Dr. K took her to the operating room. She wasn't expected to survive, but she was only 27 years old. She had a two-year-old daughter, so we had to try. She at least needed a chance to hear the good news. Dr. K, my surgical partner, opened into the cavities that were full of pus to clean them out, leaving behind large tubes to drain the neck and chest. Mediastinitis is a devastating disease and is uniformly fatal if not treated quickly. With early treatment, including surgery and strong intravenous antibiotics, the infection can be halted out, but Mata Singh did not come early. She came very late. Thankfully, God does not read our medical textbooks, nor is he bound by the laws of pathology and physiology. Mai Singh did not die that night, nor the next. She was sick. Her family rhythmically squeezed the bag that pushed oxygenated air into her lungs. Pus still rolled out of the tubes stuck in her, but little by little, incrementally, we saw signs of progress. Over the next six weeks, Mai Tai Singh slowly, progressively improved as God resurrected her from the surety of death. As Mai Tai Singh's condition began to improve, she began to show interest in the one to whom these strange foreigners and many of the Bangladeshi nurses and social workers were praying to. She listened as stories that were so different from the stories of Buddha and of the impossible requirements to enlightenment and nirvana. These were stories of someone who loved her, who provided a way to escape the awfulness of sin. In fact, had sacrificed himself to provide a way of salvation that was free. She saw the love, the care, the compassion, and the sincerity of those that so carefully attended to her. Even in the dirty, messy, foul duties that she would never do except for her own children were respectfully, gently, and lovingly carried out. During those six weeks in the hospital, God used the staff at Memorial Christian Hospital like a glove on his own hand to draw Mai Tai Singh to himself. Her husband, who faithfully visited and helped care for her, saw and heard much of what Mai Tai Singh did, and God captured his heart with love and grace, with his love and grace. He too turned from light into darkness. Angels rejoiced as God's glory was manifest in the lives of, these, of this poor Marma couple. Now, this isn't the end of the story. You're going to have to come back tonight to hear the end of 
Mai Tai Sing's story, which is really just the beginning. Now, one last point, then we need to have communion together. I want you to notice that in verse 11, this book ends with a cliffhanger. It really ends non-complete. Like, we want to know, well, what's the next page, right? What, What happens? How did Jonah respond to God's words of reproof? Now, Jewish tradition says, quote, in that hour, Jonah fell on his face and said, govern your world according to the measure of mercy. As it is said in Daniel 9, 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, end quote. But the truth is, we don't know. That's just Jewish tradition. But I'll leave you with one parting question. How do you think we got the book of Jonah? Including the prayer from the fish belly in chapter 2. You can think on that for a bit. One commentator said this, that the book of Jonah forces us to contemplate our own personal destiny. It remains unfinished in order that we may provide our own conclusion. For you are Jonah, I am Jonah. Keller says, it's as if God shoots this arrow of a question at Jonah. But then Jonah disappears, and we realize that the arrow is aimed at us. So how will you answer? We're going to move into a time of communion in a moment. But I just want you to bow your head and take a couple moments to ask yourselves that very question. Do you have the compassion of God for those around you?